What is up, guys? My name is KJ, and this is Wild Theology. Now, today, I got a very special episode with my dear brother in Christ, Blake Reed. Um, we actually were discussing and concluding my four-part series on what does it mean to be reformed. Today, me and him discuss on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, and this will conclude my four-part series. Now, because I'm a reformed Baptist, I may add another C in there, which is called Cradle Baptism. I might have a very special episode coming in the future about that. But stay tuned. Five solos of the Pride mm-hmm. Reformation. Can you hear me, Blake? I can. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Is it sound pretty clear on my side or is the chopper anything? It sounds pretty good. Um, I'm talking kind of slow to see if I hear any echo, and I don't right now. All right. Looks like we're good to go, man. You ready? Yeah, I guess we are ready. <laughs> All right, man. My name is KJ, short for Khalil Jones. Um, this is Why Theology. Today I got my very own professor, some kind of apostle prophet, but he goes by Blake Reed. Can you please introduce yourself, man? Yeah, uh, my name is Blake Reap. I, I don't know where he gets this title of professor <laughs> from. I, I'm hardly a first-year MDiv student at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. I'm living in Little Rock, so I'm doing a lot of my coursework online. I work full-time uh, in IT in a bank. And uh, to say that's a world I ever expected to end up in would be false. Um, <laughs> but here we are. I'm currently a pastoral intern at Central Hope Church in Little Rock and uh, working towards the process of ordination uh, in the Presbyterian Church in America. Awesome, 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 man. Now, what it like? How did you come to Christ, man? For those so, who don't I know. Was, <clears throat> so I was, so I was fifteen, and to share the story uh, briefly, um, I was out skateboarding in my front driveway at the time, and there was a trick that I was trying to land that I uh, had had thought that I had perfected uh, at the time, and I could I could get out in the driveway and do it now, uh, even even still. And I thought, well, you know, since I can't land it, I'll do it in honor of someone, you know, kind of a mythos out there that if you do something for someone else, then naturally you'll have the capacity to do it. And being a good American, I thought that I will do it for Jesus and I will have to land it because that's how God works. And I tried it and I failed to do it. And I landed with one foot on the skateboard and one foot off and The stunning realization of what it meant to be sinful, to miss the mark of holiness, to miss the standard of righteousness, kind of overcame me. Did I understand all of that at the time? No, but a deep sense of conviction, you know, where Jesus says that the spirit will come and convict the world of sin. Uh, Boy, was he right. Um, Boy, was he uh, commanding and, and offering that to be so. And so that, that was what led me to investigate and go to a church that I had been to before. I, I even called a friend in that moment and was like, hey, next Wednesday, do you want to go to this youth group with me that I'd been to before? And shortly after that, I, I want to say that was like September, August, September. Um, and then in October, after going for several weeks, uh, I was challenged with the question of, you know, what do you really even know about God? And I was like, nothing. And... Um, I don't, I don't remember doing anything like praying a prayer or anything like that, but someone explained to me, uh, the atoning work of Christ. And I said, I want that. I want to believe in him. And I have been pursuing God uh, ever since then. Hey, okay. Okay. How long have you been a Christian? Well, you had to put it like in a, a, I guess a year time frame. <laughs> oh yeah. So I was 15 at that time. I'm 26 now. So. Um, still a young, young kid. St- still a young, and I guess um, I <laughs> celebrated a friend's birthday yesterday. He just turned twenty nine, and so man, like man, I'm we're, we're getting up there. You know, the people around you start getting old. You kind of start realizing you're getting old too. So um, lo- that's a long way of saying about eleven years now. It kind of hit me last year. I was like, man, I've been doing this following Jesus thing since uh, for almost for ten years now. It's and I still feel like I have hardly any of it figured out. 
Hey, I, I'm sure that's all of us, man. Now, are you married by any chance? Man, you're asking me these questions like you don't know me. I know this stuff. Somebody <laughs> I, know know. I know it's for the people. It's for the people. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been married to a um, fantastic woman named Tori since uh, 2017. We started dating when we were in high school, and, and everybody goes, oh, that's so cute. And it's like, yeah, we just learned how to put up with each other better than most people because of that. Oh, man. I'm sure it's working like that stuff. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, probably probably one of the best people I know. So she's uh, one of the most patient and kind people. She can put up with me. I think she can put up with anyone. So, all right, make sure you copy the link after this podcast and send it to her, and tell her like to go to the five minute mark so she can hear that. <laughs> you make you make it that PS five, man. If she hears no, that, no, that won't happen. She'll just roll her eyes. Oh uh, man, you never know. Don't even know, man. But let me uh, let's get get started, man. Today's topic is one I'm pretty sure you're probably uh, excited about. We're going to talk about the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Now, I started a series on um, what does it mean to be reformed. And uh, one of the misconceptions out there is that, you know, to be reformed is simply to be Calvinistic. And I had like a four-part series, you know, three C's and five S's. Covenant theology, Calvinistic, confessional slash creed. And then now we're talking about the five solas. That's Protestant Reformation. So here's a question for you, Blake. What was it that kind of led you to like, you know, the home world? And like who is somebody you got your great influences? Yeah, so uh I as I said earlier, I came to faith at the age of fifteen and that was at a um, non confessional evangelical uh, Baptist church and you know, I praise God that God meets us in imperfect places because every place um this side of heaven is an imperfect place. And I uh, jumped in really quickly in desiring to understand and know who God is. Um, not, not to necessarily just take everyone's word for this is how things ought to be. And so I was reading all sorts of websites. You know, this was the, it was like 2009. And so the internet wasn't nearly as cool as it is now. And so they're just, the resources I was reaching out to and finding, um, I felt were the best at the time. I was looking back. Um, I know that's not really the case, but um, I'd become very prideful in thinking that I had a lot figured out. And so I went to college. I went to John Brown University in Salem Springs, Arkansas. It's an interdenominational school, but the majority of the Bible department there um, I have a degree, I have a bachelor's of science in business and a minor in biblical and theological studies. And so I had a handful of classes that I was required to take in order to achieve that minor. And so I spent a lot of time with the biblical studies department. And most of those professors are either um, within the reform tradition, uh, whether that be Anglican or um, Presbyterian or, or just within that field, uh, to some degree. And so I was heavily influenced by their teaching and their instruction, but there's one partic particular professor. Um, her name's Robbie Castleman. If she ever hears this, uh, I doubt it, but she may. And so I just a shout out to her for her humble posture and teaching and her desire to instill in us a, a deep reverence for God. And I remember one particular class we were talking about the gospel of john that's what that whole class was about and she did the classic van till circle and just simply stated that god is god and you are not and that was really um challenging and transforming to me in that moment of just realizing that the distance between myself and god is so great that to think that I am as knowledgeable as I should be and that uh, I have anything to merit and do on my own uh, as it relates to justification was kind of what drew me to uh, the reformed tradition because I was just blown away with the greatness of God. Hmm. Now who are like, um, I guess in light of what you just said, you mentioned like Van too, and I, I'm sure you probably, that's probably what your favorite influences, but like, I know you like, you know, Bavik and uh, what's it, Voss. Who else do you like or influenced by? Yeah, so um, 
you know, I mentioned Van Til in that. And I had no idea who Van Til was at the time, but that's where she <laughs> got that from. And and so I appreciate uh, people dumbing some things down for me, uh, even then and even now. But yeah, I, I've been really influenced as of late uh, by Gerhardus Voss. I'm trying to finish his biblical theology book before uh, next semester starts. Um, and then I've been reading Bob Inc. for school, and that's been really, he's been really influential uh, because of his, his depth of, of knowledge and love for biblical theology and like intersecting that with systematic theology. Um, I think one of the biggest things that um, we are struggling with in our, in our time is systematic theology that's removed from biblical theology. So that's been really impactful. Um, and then learning about uh, Calvin, obviously, uh, if, I, if I said I didn't, couldn't attribute some of my learning to Calvin, uh, Augustine, to a degree or another. Um, some of the more modern reformers, like R.C. Sproul, really helped me gain an understanding of the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, and his great love for us in that. Um, I think we often, as reformers, people within the Reformed tradition tend to beat ourselves down and think that we're such terrible, terrible people um, and forget that the love of God has transformed us and that um, I, I want to say it's like Isaiah 64. I'm just like rattling off at the top of my head. But uh, talking about the Son of Man and his future suffering and that he saw his progeny and saw it as a delight. And his progeny being those whom would be born of the spirit uh, by the work of Christ. And so um, the, the, that like God delighting in us as a result of Jesus is something that's been uh, lost. And a lot of these theologians has helped me um, enjoy that. One of the, one of the, just one, one more thing I'll, I'll give you an influence is Matthew Henry. I uh, recently picked up his book, a way to pray from uh, banner of truth. And it's been really influential as well. You got to read his uh, commentary. Matthew Henry. Yeah, I, I know about Matthew Henry's commentary. Uh, you, you might get a laugh out of this. I remember being uh, in undergraduate and talking about the various uh, commentaries we had to use to write these papers. And we were not allowed to use Matthew Henry's commentaries because they weren't academic enough. They were, what? they were, uh, too pastoral and so we needed something that engaged the text more exegetically so we weren't allowed to use his commentaries then that's kind of messed up isn't it? Uh, i don't think it's messed up it was it was good for us to be challenged and forced to deal more um, academically with the text rather than um kind of what we thought was Good. I'm sorry if you hear some background noise right now. My wife has texted me asked to look up something because she's out shopping. So you can edit this out of the episode <laughs> if you need to. But I need you guys to give me some goldfish since you guys are already at the store and I'll pay you back. No, nah, man. But I... <laughs> <laughs> hey, my wife likes goldfish, so you might find them up in the cabinet. Yay. That's what I'm talking about. Make sure the extra cheddar, man. It's the best kind of goldfish. <laughs> And since you're Presbyterian, I know you may like to drink some alcohol, so maybe we can get some uh, goldfish and alcohol going on soon. Man, I, I don't know that you'd want to drink alcohol with goldfish. <laughs> it may taste good, you know? Nah, I'm just messing with you, man. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working on the guy. I'm trying to get him to come to the dark side. He don't want to come. But, uh, man, so um, we think about the Protestant Reformation. The first thing that comes to mind is, uh, of course, Martin Luther. Um can you tell us a little bit about him and how his five solas kind of started before we, you know, break down what, our, what each one of them are? Yeah, so I was thinking about that, and that's that's a pretty uh, challenging task to summarize it. But you know how the how the five solas came about is uh, you know the Reformation is almost like an event during a period of history. As I was thinking about this and preparing for our discussion. It's uh, the Reformation is uh, hardly hardly a, a time period, I think. And, and uh, a good church historian might correct me on that, and that's fine. Um, but there's the the medieval period was was going on, and 
the prominent Catholic theologian at the time was Thomas Aquinas and a whole lot of the other scholastics. And so every, everything was pretty much Roman Catholic. Uh, there was no competing influences out there. Um, I mean, I, to say there weren't any, there might have been, but the predominant predominant tradition at the time was Roman Catholicism. And so Luther was an Augustinian monk. Uh, he was supposed to be a lawyer, if I remember correctly. That was what his family wanted him to be. And then he had an experience in the Black Forest and feared for his life and dedicated his life to the um, to being a monk as a result of making it out of that that scenario. And so he was an Augustinian monk. And so uh, it's it's somewhat ironic when we think about it that those of us in the Reformed tradition who value Augustine so highly and read his works and his his assessments of the five solas, you know, we, we draw some of our influence from him on those that uh, there's a whole Roman Catholic tradition under the teachings of Augustine that are devoid of the five solas. And so Luther, Luther was a man of strong conviction. I mean, I think you got to be pretty, pretty strongly convicted and pretty strong willed to roll up to the, the, the Wittenberg doors and nail a piece of paper to it. Um, that, 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 it takes some, some boldness. And so he, uh, in studying and preparing for his lectures, reading through Romans, wrestling with his own internal guilt, believing that he had to come up with righteousness of God from himself, uh, read those texts in Romans and read, God revealed his righteousness. Not, not we produced righteousness in and of ourselves, but that God showed forth his righteousness and became convicted and realized that uh, the justification of God, the righteousness of God, and was something given to us, imputed to us by the finished work of Jesus. And then uh, led to his nailing of the 95 theses on the door of the, of the church in Wittenberg and started what we know as the Protestant Reformation, where we see people like Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli um, and various other types of reformers uh, within their context, dealing with specific issues in those contexts, um, kind of hitching their wagon to the overall uh, reformed movement. Mm. Now, we, uh, kind of what you just said, um... I think, too, like with Luther, like he wasn't even saved when he wrote those 95 theses on the door at the time. It was like kind of, I forgot, was he reading Galatians when he says like um, about that righteousness? He realized that he needed a form righteousness. Yeah, it was either Romans or Galatians. I It always seems uh, so difficult to remember those things, but um, probably one of those two. I I don't, I always, I'm always a little fearful in uh, saying things so strongly so straightforward and ended up being wrong about it. But um, <laughs> yeah, I want to say it was one of those two. Yeah. Yeah. So it's crazy, man. You can know theology and still be lost. Cause I mean, he was teaching when he teaching theology. Yeah. He was a Protestant, uh, was it Augustine, Augustine monk. Yeah. So he, like, like I said, he was the, he was an Augustinian monk and he was teaching at the university of Wittenberg as a Roman Catholic. And so he was, so he was very convinced of that. Now, to, to say that um, Luther was lost uh, might be a little bit of hubris on our part. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, we, we don't want to be that overreaching. Um, as Reformed believers, we, we adhere to the fact that God calls and God elects and um, God sanctifies and he does those things. And, you know, it's the, the work of the Spirit leading leading him to those convictions. And so, you know, just, just because he couldn't articulate everything perfectly at the time, doesn't mean that the inner working of the spirit wasn't going on in his life. And it led him to those convictions and a rediscovery and a recovery of the true gospel. Um, I just, it might, it might be too much for us to pinpoint a specific time in which like, this is when Luther got saved. Like, 
Uh, ultimately, he was elected before the foundations of the world, and um, that's all we really need to um, hang our hats on. Okay, okay. Uh, can you still hear me? Uh, you're a little fuzzy. What about now? There you go. Okay, okay. So what are the um, – we get ready to dive into this subject. You kind of gave us history about Martin Luther. Of course, he was like the lead reformer starting this whole movement. And out of that movement, we got the five solas. Now, what are those five solas? And um, well, after you get the, I guess, after you get done telling us what they are, we'll dive in kind of individually what they are. Yeah. So uh, the five solas are essentially five statements um, that kind of assert the core uh, foundational doctrines of the Reformation. And so we've got. Man, do I got you, Blake? You do. Can you hear me clearly? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? I can. I'm trying out some new headphones I got for Christmas. So new headphones. Yeah, man, we rolling up here. <laughs> so if you guys listen to this podcast episode, you're probably wondering why did the episode just cut out? Well, um, last time me and Blake were actually recording this episode, I had to get I got called in the work, and so I had to end the episode kind of early. But Blake was very kind. He said he would do it this, uh, do it again with me this week. And so now it's after Christmas. And so, did you get that PS Five, man? No, I did not. Um, I was I was told no. However, uh, I did get Gerhardus Voss's Reform Dogmatics. I've got the Collected Works of John Knox coming in the mail, and I've got the Letters of John Calvin coming in the mail. So I think, in terms of truly productive. And uh, beneficial things, I probably got the better end of the deal. Yeah, it sounds like some uh, pretty good uh, stuff over there, man. I need <laughs> yeah, some I, I'm pretty excited for it, although I got to find a place in my office slash study to put a new bookcase. I don't know where it's going to go yet, but it's in the box and needs to be put <laughs> together. I know you can figure it out, man. I know you got it. Yeah, we'll find something, that's for sure. All right, man. So, um, when we were recording out in the last part of the episode, uh, I think you ended off by saying that the five solars are five statements of faith that kind of proceeded out of the Reformation. So can you kind of talk about that, man? What are the five solars? Yeah, so uh, as I was saying before, we were so rudely interrupted um, <laughs> <laughs> that the five solas are essentially statements of faith that came out of the Reformation work. And the focus... Not not totally, but primarily, there, there were some other things to be discussed uh, within the context of the Reformation, but was really honed in on the on the theological idea of, of justification and justification by faith. Um, the prevailing doctrine of the time was that justification was almost like two parts. It was very synergistic and not monergistic and that we had to participate and not not participate, but we had to act in our salvation in order to fully realize um, our salvation. Now that's different than saying we've been saved and now works proceed from our salvation, but that we had to contribute works to our salvation for it to be fully what it was meant to be. And and that's just a brief summary of that. If if you're listening to this and you've never heard that that was one of the prevailing thoughts during the medieval time, I highly encourage you to check that out um, because it is surely still an issue today, but Mm -hmm. The five solas, that being um, by faith alone, um, according to scripture alone, um, by grace alone, for God's glory alone, through Christ alone, you know, those those statements uh, really flowed from an understanding of justification. And so and I say all of that because there's there can be a prevailing idea that after we have been saved, that these same principles um, apply in the same way. And and I, I mentioned all that, and I'll get more into depth in this, but I just, just want to like, this is something that I've been thinking about here lately as it pertains to justification and uh, sanctification is that we are, san- we are also sanctified by faith. That's true, but none of that is a license to sit on the couch and go, God, change me. <laughs> but rather to participate in the life of Christ and and go and pursue holiness now that we have been saved. And, yeah. and so it's 
Um, I, I'm seeing I'm seeing that to be more of a, a trend and an issue in my own experience in less uh, confessionally reformed circles. That's something that people tend to fall into when they don't have the backing of, of a confession. But that's that's kind of a side thing. I, I just want to throw out there as I was thinking about these things, because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot here lately as it pertains to justification and the solas. And so, um, you know, jump, jumping into it, um, you know, I, I never can remember the order of these things and how they're exactly stated, which is probably problematic on my own part. Let's start with Sola Scriptura. Yeah, so Sola Scriptura, uh, the bottom line is scripture alone. And so we ask the question, what is our highest authority when it comes to faith and life? And during the medieval period, when Martin Luther and the other reformers like John Calvin, John Knox, um, Ulrich Zwingli, and the, the plethora of other men, and, and probably women out there uh, <laughs> that worked work towards changing that mindset that the church institutionally had equal authority with scripture. And so the bottom line for Roman Catholicism then was that if the Pope said it, it was on equal authority with scripture. And the problem with that, even, even then is that we're, we're basing uh, the word of God on equal authority of the word of a person. And two, the outworking of such theology led to the Pope being able to make statements about how scripture was to be interpreted. Now, that's not to deny that we don't lean on the historical understanding of the Christian tradition to understand scripture. Uh, that's one thing, but it's another thing to say, this is how you need to interpret this. Because then we're, we're putting what man has to say above what the scriptures may actually teach. And so when we think about the, the concept of justification, or, or I, I rather I should say a theology of justification, not the concept, um, but the theology of justification, we need that truth to come from Scripture, and we need to let Scripture dictate how we understand how we're justified and made righteous before a holy God. If people have the ability to dictate how that looks, um, I think there would be a lot less people that would consider themselves justified because we don't have six packs. We don't make a billion dollars a year. I don't drive a Maserati. Um, the, the, the things that we hail as successful. And so that's why we got to get our, our understanding of justification and our understanding of all things in Christian life and doctrine um, from the scriptures. Hmm. So, Kind of, in essence, kind of what you're saying is that basically like the, you know, the Roman Catholic Church back in the day, like the problem wasn't that like, you know, the inerrancy of scripture, but the problem was due to like them holding tradition and the Pope above the scriptures as like a, a rule of authority in a sense. Yeah, so it, they they would say, uh, even, even now, I think, uh, even after the council, the second council of Trent, that the the Holy See, which would be the Pope, had equal authority. But I think practically, when you think about it, it ends up working itself out in where Scripture becomes subservient to what the church had to say about Scripture. Hmm. And, and so, you know, if, if we read Genesis, for example, and we're studying it and we're trying to get an understanding of, of original sin— and the Pope or someone, and I'm not saying that the Catholic Church has ever said this, and this is hypothetical at this point, that if the Pope were to say something along the lines of, well, Genesis is actually supposed to be interpreted allegorically, well, then that would become binding. And so the new interpretation of Genesis, according to the Pope and within the doctrine of the Catholic Roman Catholic Church, would require that we examine Genesis allegorically and no other, no other available options. And so now we're imposing upon scripture um, a method of examining it and exegeting it in which we may end up uh, not actually taking scripture for what scripture is intending to give us, which ultimately is what, what God is intending to give us. Hmm. So you could say too, so like tradition was kind of like conceived as like a second source of revelation for the Pope and the Roman Catholic church during that time period. And so people like Calvin and Luther and the reformers, they were saying no, they're trying to call the church back to the, the scriptures alone for authority. Right. And, that, and that's, 
Right. And it's a different thing to say. Um, the phrase I've seen put out there is solo scriptura. You know, we, we yeah. lean on tradition. And we certainly utilize it because if it wasn't for tradition, um, there would be a lot of things that we would not understand about scripture uh, concerning yeah. scripture. Um, it wasn't it wasn't like the book fell from heaven. It wasn't like the book dictated what books need to go in the com the combined corpus of scripture. Um, and so there's things that we, we have to lean on, but ultimately we ask the question, does this tradition align with what is biblical or, or does scripture speak very specifically to these traditional practices? And, and that's why by the grace of God, we have the ability to have some differences in traditional practice amongst the, the Christian church and say, you know, hey, these things aren't exclusively dictated by this or that, and we have the freedom in Christ to worship him in a variety of different ways. Hmm. See, this is this is okay, starting okay. to affect more than just justification, but um, yeah, it, it, it was bore forth from the, the understanding that we need to reform the church in terms of justification and, and, and some other things, but uh, practically it lends itself to affect all aspects of Christian life. Okay. And so um, let's, that points us like to our next um, uh, sola, because you're kind of hitting at it as well when you mentioned justification. So let's talk about sola fide or um, faith alone. And so as you probably know, this is probably like the most um, essential doctrine that proceeded kind of out of the Reformation. Of course, the gospel was, but like, I know like Calvin and Luther, they spoke a lot about justification by faith alone. And so sola fide, what is that, Blake? Yeah, so sola fide, by faith alone, we're talking about um, salvation, justification, um, and ultimately the, the whole of Christian life is one that flows from faith. And so the, the prevailing thought at the time, based on Catholic, Roman Catholic tradition, I keep saying Catholic, but I like to specify Roman Catholic because uh, yeah. our confessional statements use the word Catholic in a much more positive light. And so uh, we, we want to adhere to that universality of the invisible church throughout all time and place. But um, the prevailing thought then was that, as I said earlier, we have to contribute to the work of Jesus in a synergistic way by which we brought forth the fullness of salvation. And that if we didn't do good works and add those to them, it was almost like um, Jesus laid the foundation of a house for us and we had to build the rest of it, which we say, no, Jesus builds the house and even puts us in the house. But the prevailing thought then was that we needed to contribute to the, to the building of the house or else our salvation was not complete. Now that's I want to read this quote. Please. Oh, my bad. You go. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I want to read this quote to you, too. Um, Dr. Keith Madison, he's a professor in systematic theology. Um, he has, like, a whole article on, on the five solas. But when you get to, like, sola fide, he mentions kind of, like, kind of what the, the Roman Catholic Church believed in. Uh, he says in his little paragraph right here, basically, like, the, um, you got, you know, the Council of Trinity, I'm sure. Yes. But, like, um, in, in the Council of Trinity, uh, 1547, it says, according to this decree, fallen human beings are made just through the labor of regeneration. In short, the instrumental cause justification being made just is baptism. Justification is said to involve remission of sins and also sanctification and renewal of the inward man. Justification is not by faith alone, according to Catholic Church, because hope and charity must be added. And so, kind of, what's your thoughts about that? <laughs> man, <laughs> about I, that? I don't, I don't know how to say it better. Um, the, I'm thankful for the reformed teaching that we understand that faith and all that comes from faith is, is a gift from God. Um, there, I was talking to somebody on the phone this week, and they talked about how R.C. Sproul was, was always an advocate for nuanced doctrine, because that's the work of theology, is we, we have the responsibility and the ability to be nuanced. Um, it, it seems to me, and, and this is my undergraduate study of church history. I've not gotten into my church history classes yet, um, but even then that's barely putting a foot in the pond that um, the, the lines almost seem to be blurred 
by the, the Roman Catholic Church at the time that they, they didn't make a distinction between we were already regenerate and saved and therefore works flowed out of that. Um, they firmly held to the fact works needed to be added to the work of Jesus uh, almost in order to prove our worthiness to to have received it. Um, it's it's difficult and um, sad. I think there's a lot of people who, uh, shoot, we look at the life of Martin Luther, and Martin Luther was always trying to understand how he was supposed to compel out of himself a righteousness of God. And then he started to reread the scriptures and understand the righteousness of God was not for him to give righteousness to God to be approved of, but to have, to receive righteousness from God. And so, uh, yeah, I think I think that might be kind of how the, the distinction works out. But the lines are blurred, and I bottom line is I agree with that quote. I think that makes that makes good sense. That the expectations that we would add something to to the work of Christ. Okay, so could we say that so like the reformers they rejected the idea that um, justification means making just by faith that is not alone. And so I think um, Luther has a quote about that as well. We're saved by our faith, but that faith is not alone. And so when we say philophide, kind of how would you kind of simplify it? You know, just kind of define that before we go to the next one. Yeah. So certainly our our faith is not one uh, that is alone, and and we. We, we should be careful not to take extreme examples and turn them into ultimate examples, uh, primarily thinking of uh, the thief on the cross uh, who asked Jesus to remember him as he went into his kingdom. Um, he, To me, that's hardly a profession of lordship, and he certainly didn't have the uh, opportunity to act on that faith or act in that faith. Um, but nevertheless, that, that does not mean that he was a man without uh, faith. Um, I think it's, I think sometimes being in and around and loosely identifying with evangelicalism, that the, the idea can be that we need to adhere to a certain level of good works. Uh, but the reality is, is that all the good works that we have were prepared before us uh, sovereignly by God. And so some of us may end up being uh, far more charitable than someone else, but that does not mean that we question that person's faith uh, because we are trusting in that God is going to sovereignly and graciously continue to sanctify that person. And that, you know, good works are not necessarily a list to check off of to say, uh, well, you, you know, you prove yourself sufficient to be saved, because if, if so, then we're falling right back into pre-Reformation or medieval teaching, I should say, of how salvation operated. And so good works certainly should accompany that, but um, I don't think in any way are we supposed to sit down with like a clipboard and a checklist and say, well, you know, KJ... Um, you didn't quite make it to this level of charity, so I'm I'm really concerned about your salvation. It's like no, um, there's evidence of of God's grace in your life by the good works that He brought out of you, and so hmm. we praise God for that, and we praise God for His grace that every single one of us, by His grace, are what we are, and that is beloved children of God. I got this quote too. I know you you probably know this by heart, but the Westminster Large Catechism, uh, question number seventy: What is justification? You know the answer to that, man. Not <laughs> off the top of my head. I'm I'm really trying to work towards learning those uh, really in depth right now, and make making I sure you, I that I, I remember them. So if you would quote it for me, that would be fantastic. <laughs> All right. The answer is justification is the act of God's free grace unto sinners, in which He pardons all their sins accepts and accounts their person righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. And so it kind of sounds like the gospel that like a person is justified or counted as righteous in God's eyes because of what Christ has done. And so by having faith in Christ, we are just before God because of what Christ has done. 
it's an active and passive obedience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, amen to that. You know, the, one of my favorite questions from, from the catechism is, what is faith in Jesus Christ and is a free gift of God whereby which we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation? And I think that receiving and resting are things that um, are, are responses to already re- like Jesus coming towards us and just captures that um, so well. Yeah, I think that's question 86 from the shorter catechism, if I, if I remember correctly. But So that could be kind of important today, too, though. So like a lot of people, too, um, they think that we're justified, kind of like what the, you know, the church said, the Catholic church said back in the day, that, you know, by baptism or by being a good person or by doing these good deeds, you know, we're justified because of what Christ has done for us. So, you know, we just think you know, God using the reformers to like point us back to the scriptures because you know Bible is an issue, but you know, people can God's word, and so that's kind of what sola fide is. Yeah, absolutely, and it's something we say in our ministry context here in Little Rock um, is people tend to have the idea that they are um, saved by grace but sanctified by hustle. <laughs> you got. <it. laughs> Yeah, I mean, just the reality is, is that people often believe that you are made right before God, like you're brought into a relationship with God, but you've got to do some good works in order to be made holy mm. like God. And there's there's a loss uh, culturally in the understanding that by the work of Jesus, we've also been sanctified. Yeah, it seems like that's something like a lot of Christians, you know, even myself at times in the past have struggled with it. Like, you know, we've been saved by this grace. We did nothing to earn the grace, but now God freely gave it to us. But like, depending on how deep we are in sin, that kind of determines whether or not we still get to keep that grace. It's like, as though God's not faithful to his promises. And so like kind of undermining, you know, God's promises. So that's kind of, I'm pretty sure somebody listening to this right now, it kind of feels like that, that like, you know, if I sin, it's like we, we get saved. We have a new slate, and then if we keep on sinning, we dirty that slate up, and then God kind of like forgets about our salvation. Yeah, no, there, there's there are traditions that exist within the broader form of what is known as evangelicalism that certainly certainly believe that, and they pe- those people need to hear uh, the beauty and the purity of the gospel um, so that they can receive and rest upon Jesus alone for salvation. And even if you know somebody listens to. You know, listening to me, if that's how you feel now, just remember like what the gospel is and how you get nothing to deserve the gospel, but God freely gave it to you. Uh, you know, by being covenant, I know you under <laughs> you love the covenant of grace. But um Absolutely. <laughs> but think about this, so guys, you know, if you're feeling discouraged, just remember it. You know, Ephesians two, verse eight. But God. So sola gratia. Yeah, so by grace alone, it ties directly into this con- this discussion, this conversation about justification. Um, I know we we've got a time limit on this, and we've spent a lot of time explaining these other ones, but you um, I'll I'll make this one somewhat brief. Is that this justification, this faith that we have received, is all by the unmerited favor from God that we did nothing to earn or deserve it, but that God freely. Uh, unbound by anything other than the covenant of redemption that he had made with himself, that being the Son, the Son of God, the Father, and the Spirit, uh, freely gives upon, freely gives to sinners uh, grace and faith and justification in Jesus Christ. Hmm. And I'm sure you know, like in the you know the early fifth century, you know Augustine and the Pelagian, they had a huge debate about this very issue right here. You know, Pelagian, then he kind of discredited um, original sin. And so, yeah, so you can go, I'll let you touch on that. Yeah, so um, I, one of the, one of the papers I wrote in undergrad for my first church history class was actually on the Pelagius Augustine uh, controversy. And I, I think I believe that this was probably the best paper I ever wrote in undergrad. <laughs> um, my outline. My outline was really good. I felt like my research was really good. I really enjoyed writing it because it really gave me a good understanding of how history and doctrine develop together. But yeah, uh, 
August or Pelagius had read from or heard from Augustine something along the lines of Augustine saying, uh, "Bring, uh, permit what you command." Was was along the lines of what Augustine had said, and Pelagius took offense to that, and so uh, Augustine responded by saying that uh, there's no way that that could work that we need to respond to it by doing good works. And so um, that was Pelagius' response. Augustine countered by essentially um, preparing and producing a doctrine of original sin. And so the being sinful from birth, being what the first point of Calvinism tells us is that we are totally depraved and that we ourselves cannot turn to God. And so by grace alone, God regenerates us changes our will and we turn to him so there's a, a broader and deeper uh, conception of grace alone but yes that certainly um, finds its uh, origin in the pelagius uh, augustine controversy which is just super interesting uh, when you think about martin luther and his early faith before um, before the reformation that being an augustinian monk he had no conception of this. Yeah. And I think it kind of goes back to the fact that the Roman Catholic Church at the time had um, stated how things were, and that superseded what Scripture even had to teach and, and overrode even their own history. I know today, um, you know, many people, quote-unquote, who are Calvinistic believe that's, that's what it means to be reformed. And so when you say that you believe in, in my grace alone, they think that you know you simply mean you believe in grace, but when we say grace alone, we're, we're simply meaning that we are saved by grace alone. And so, kind of what you said, Pelagian, he believed that if God commanded something, that man naturally, apart from grace, would never do it. So, kind of like he didn't believe he believed Adam's sin had only affected Adam and not you know an entire race. And so, both our confessions kind of have a whole you know art, a chapter dealing with that the very issue, you know, the fall and state of man and after. And so Augustine kind of talked about that. Calvin, Luther, Luther has a whole book kind of the bondage of the will. And so, <laughs> yep, he does. I've, I've got it on my shelf. I've not read it in its wholeness, but in due time, I got my whole life to live and read books. I need to read that book too. I read some of it. I think uh, my favorite uh, theologian, Edwards, he has something about a book as well about the bondage of the will and the freedom of will. Some of the lines of that. In the recent periods, is late. Hey, I, I've I've got some Puritans, but you, you you know you know I'm all hyped up on Voss and and Bob Inc and the Dutch Reformed movement right now. So I'm reading a lot about them and uh, gaining a lot of great encouragement um, from them. So I got you, I got what's our what's our next solo, KJ? What's our next one? Okay, man. So we are saved by grace alone. You know that grace is. You know we we get that grace by having faith alone. And the next one is in Christ alone. Sola Christ Christus. And so we discuss. Yeah. You know scriptures alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. What do we mean when we say Christ alone? Man, this one is probably if I, if I had to pick one, if I had to pick a sola, so it was the most important sola. Um, this might be one of them. Um, I, I don't. I don't know that it's even right to rank them in importance. But in Christ alone essentially means that it is Jesus Christ by which we receive this grace, in this faith, in this justification. Um, it's not a different source. It, it rightly contradicts kind of what you and I have been talking about. That that in some other place, some other source that being our own good works or something other than God, that be um, our confession of sin to a priest, those things make us righteous. And in the sola Christus in Christ alone says otherwise. It says this comes from God. And, and that's the thing about in Christ alone, that's such a, such a loaded statement because we have to take into account all of the things all that who Christ is and all that Christ has done for us. I mean, we have to take that whole package when we consider that. And at the end of the day, remember that um, everything that Jesus is, is imputed to us minus his deity. 
Um, but his redeemed humanity is imputed to us. His righteousness is imputed to us. His sonship to the Father is imputed to us. His life in the Spirit, um, that is both, that is his resurrected life is imputed to us. His glory is imputed to us. And, and imputed is just a fancy way of saying given to us. Um, it really characterizes that passivity and grace and that we're simply recipients that are receiving this from Christ and resting in Christ. I've heard it said too that, um, you know, that uh, Jesus, he fulfilled the covenant of works inside the covenant of grace and he accomplished the covenant of redemption all by doing that very thing. And so, um, for example, let's, if we like try to contextualize this uh, sola, you know, go back to the Roman Catholic Church, we know that like, you know, the problem wasn't solely the person of Christ because, you know, we have the Nicene, Trinitarianism, we have the Chalcedonian, I think the Christology. And so we kind of have like what they believe about Christ, but the problem was the kind of what Christ done, like you kind of said, the work of Christ. And so the context behind, you know, this scripture, this scripture I guess, I say scripture, sola, is <laughs> on like the sacrificial system the Catholic Church kind of had back in the day. So you have anything yes. to say about that? Yeah, so that, that's a, a good question that I, I don't want to be out too overreaching on because I feel like I might be um, a little uneducated on how to really speak to that. But I would say, based on what I do know, um, it seems to me that Roman Catholic teaching on uh, salvation did not understand the fullness or the scope of Christ's work, um, the depth of it, the free grace that is uh, from Jesus. It, that's kind of where it, it, it seems to me that things got off the rails, that they, uh, they failed to understand the gravity of the person and the work of Christ. Because had they, I think they probably would have um, better, better understood uh, the implications of his work and not ended up with a, a Christ plus works uh, model of salvation. Hmm. And you know, like Paul tells us that we much preach Christ and Christ crucified. I mean, preach Christ and Christ crucified. And so I think the reformers, that's exactly what they did. And so we have solo Christus. The last one, so we have, you know, the scriptures alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And then if probably the second most important one is um, sola dea gloria, to God be the glory alone. So what do we mean when we say to God be the glory alone? Yeah, so um, I've, I've actually been having a conversation with someone here recently about uh, preaching a sermon on worship. And I, in my reading last night, I uh, kind of sent him a text and just said, hey, I, I think I think what you're really wanting to impress on people, it's just like I don't know, kind of coming together for me. Uh, what he and I were talking about is the bottom line is you want to impress upon people the holiness of God, the otherness of God to the creature. You know, as Cornelius Van Til was famous for writing on his chalkboard at the time, he'd draw two circles that weren't connected at all. And he'd be like, this is God. This is you. God is God. You are not God. And, and so when we think of the glory of God alone, all that Jesus did was for the glory of of God. It was not necessarily for our glory because God's holiness is, is about God's own um, self-direction, his own uh, desire and, and his own good desire to make much of himself. Uh, Herman Bovink, I got it on a coffee mug that I guess it's in the dishwasher right now that says God alone is man's highest good. Hmm. And so the, the reality is that this, this glory for God in this work of Jesus was for our benefit. Um, I, I remember uh, wrestling a little bit with that as I was on my, in the process of um, becoming a confessional Presbyterian that I was, I'd only adhered to Tulip and that was really all the depth of my understanding of the Reformed tradition was. And so um, when I combine those with the five solas, I was like, well, if it's God's glory alone, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that we were required, like God was required or God committed to saving us. You know, I think 
God could have been equally glorified in condemning us all to hell, but because it would have um, brought forth and showed forth his righteousness his and his glory and his holiness. Um, and so there's an element of that in which God is glorified in this work, but that we also by grace in Jesus receive the benefits of that glory. Because hmm. one day we will appear with Christ in glory. And so, um, you know, if you're listening to this right now and you, you've kind of never thought about that, uh, I encourage you to take the time to to consider that because it really changed my understanding of God's work and his work for salvation um, for us. It, yeah, God was God seeking his glory, but he also desires in his love for us. And in his love for himself to confer upon us the benefits of his glory. You know, that's why in Jesus living and dying, uh, Paul says in Romans that Jesus did this so that he would be both just and the justifier uh, and for our sake. Um, And so we, we have to be careful not to say for God's glory alone and walk around um, slapping ourselves on the back with a whip. And treating ourselves like awful, dirty worms, uh, when reality is, is in God seeking his own glory, um, saved us, and calls us his sons. And so, yeah, for God's glory alone were these things done. Um, and we, by Christ and by grace and by faith, get to participate in that glory because that's what God, that's how God wanted to, wants to be glorified. I got um, this passage in Psalms 23. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so I know you know this yeah. word. But we uh, speak of this word in theology known as the sanity of God, the seity of God, how God within himself existed from all eternity past, not in need of anything else. And so that that very idea of the city of God, it kind of shows that God is most, you know, I guess caring about his own glory. He's not, you know, worried about Blake's glory or KJ's glory or the listener's glory, but like we exist all for God's glory. We get to participate in seeing his glory. And so we can't add to his glory, but God's already glorious. He's been a glorious from eternity past. I know like, you know, you probably know this, I know you know this one. You know, what's the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? And so Absolutely. like that's what we speak about, we say to God be the glory alone. And so we had a, a whole Reformation conference, you know, back in October 31st. And like I love one of the speakers said, he says, God's glory is most seen in Jesus Christ himself. And so that's just kind of beautiful, man. Did I say that at that conference? Was that me? <laughs> no, nah, that was Jeff, man, the guy Jeff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I, I, I was, I was talking about revelation. I was like, God's revelation is most fully seen in Jesus Christ Himself, which goes hand in hand with what, um, with what Jeff said. And so, you know, I aim into that. Um, yeah, I both and that's, the same thing. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's the truth though, and that's the, in the, the grace of God and the mercy of God and. By giving us the gift of faith, we get swept up in his glory. And so his glory um, is to our benefit. Like I said, uh, God is man's highest good. And I say man generally, I mean both men and women. Uh, You know, God is our highest good and his glory is our highest good. And so we don't we don't we don't say um, solely day of Gloria to beat ourselves down. Um, but to realize that God did all of this for his glory and for our benefit. Hmm. So um, to kind of wrap us up, man, uh, again, today we talked about uh, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. This kind of concludes my series on um, what does it mean to be reformed again. I like this. It's, of course, it entails more than just these four things, but I like to simplify by saying the three C's and the five S's. So, the first C is you know, Calvinistic, and then you have confessional slash creeds, and then you have um, covenant theology, 
and then you have the five solas of reformation. And so that's kind of the simplified version of what it means to reform. Now, within those four, you know, areas entails more than just those things. You kind of go deeper than that. But kind of today, we kind of concluded my series on what it means to reform. But Blake, apart from reform theology, um, we just learned like in the Westminster, you know, catechism. I like to read the Puritan catechism by Spurgeon. You know, that our purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy it forever. And so what is the gospel, man, for somebody out there that's lost, has no idea what we're talking about, is not saved. What is, the, what is the gospel? Man, if you're listening to this and you're like, what on earth uh, are these people talking about? Um, you can think of it from, from a lens of creation, fall, uh, redemption, and glorific- glorification, and that God made man good and in the likeness of God, that man, or that God graciously entered into a covenant of life, meaning that um, God had agreed to confer and continue to confer upon uh, men and women, uh, particularly Adam and Eve, life, eternal life, so long as they continued to obey. And then Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God to seek glory for themselves. You know, we're having this conversation about glory. And I think if you are listening to this and you look around and you think, what ways have you sought your own glory above others? And what what ways has the world been damaged and hurt by other people seeking their own glory? Um, I I don't think it's difficult to find that that reality exists. Um, They sought to make something of themselves to give themselves their own name, to make their own identity. And I think our world right now, everybody's questioning who they are and what they are. And so God, being gracious enough, uh, promised that one day he would save humanity, those whom he he loves, those whom he had chosen. And so inevitably, as history goes on, we see a man named Jesus Christ come from Nazareth, which no historian, even non-Christian historians, will tell you that Jesus of Nazareth was a real man. Uh, The question is, is what did he do and say all the things that the gospel said that he did? And by faith, I think uh, we, we come to see those things, but there's a lot of questions you can ask yourself and investigate. I encourage you to investigate. Uh, if you doubt that those things could have happened, but I pray that by the grace of God, you will receive that you know, this is what God did in real time and space and in history. And then he lived, he died, he rose again in your place so that you could enter into a new covenant of life with God being his beloved child where you don't have to earn anything. You don't have to work to make yourself right before God but that you will get to receive and rest in the holiness and love that is Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And that one day um, we will be received into glory with God on a new heaven and a new earth where things like a global pandemic won't ever happen again. And so that's the, that's the long of it. Uh, the bottom line is that God made us. We hated God, and God saves us from our hatred of him and from his wrath as a result. And so we will see we will see judgment one day, but that judgment will be one where all of our sins were born and placed on Jesus, and that we'll stand righteously before God as his beloved children. Now, just to tell a joke, so does this promise belong to me and my children as well, or just the life of God? Hey man, I'm just showing you what's, what. That's what Peter said. Peter said this belongs to you and your children. So you you can take it up with Peter. Take well, it up with me. Man, you, you bad. Nah, man, do you, you have any last words? I just want to say here we was having a civil conversation, <laughs> and you went in and ruined it. Nah, man. No, no, I mean, I just I just encourage you. Yeah. Continue studying, KJ. Continue learning. Uh, I think I've seen a lot of growth in you. You started this podcast. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to to share this with you and learn together and talk together. Um, if you're a listener out there who's wanting to learn more, 
Um, there's some great resources out there that I'm sure KJ can recommend you to keep listening to this podcast. I think KJ is doing a great job bringing people in that um, understand the contextual reality that is central Arkansas and southern Arkansas. Um, check out men like R.C. Sproul uh, for some good reform teaching. Um, read his books, listen to his books. He was how I really got to understand these things um, and ultimately grow in my love. Uh, for the glory of God and and not my own. Um, and if you're listening to these things and they make you really angry and you want to go uh, beat down some churches because they're not teaching these kind of things, um, take a deep breath. <laughs> Remember that it was grace alone that saved you, and it is grace alone that's going to save these people too. So uh, d- don't don't get too mad. It's frustrating. I get it, but uh, have some grace for you to have received grace. <laughs> And like always, if you feel like you, you know you're tired of baptizing babies, come to a Reformed Baptist church. <laughs> man, get, man, see here you go again. We were having a civil conversation, and you want to go and, and make make it into something it wasn't about. <laughs> nah, it's about the five stars, man. I, I, I got my I got my professor, man. I gotta try to jump to my professor, man. I gotta. Man. Your professor gonna give you an F. Oh no, nah, man! I need to pass to all my classes. Well, you need to start working harder. <laughs> no, nah, but thank you, man, Blake, for coming on, man, and how to help me talk about this and conclude this series. I'm sure you're not gonna mind coming back on future episodes. No, I certainly would love to do that. Um, I think uh, this this coming spring wouldn't be a terrible time for it, or especially this summer. I'll be studying for my licensure exams uh, and probably only taking one one class, so I'll have a little bit more free time to jump on and talk about something else. Just a topic to think about, not as far as the debate, but just kind of you kind of laying out the framework. You know, what does it mean to kind of be Presbyterian? That would be probably a good topic for you to kind of deal with. I'm not going to like, interject in that conversation. I just kind of let you kind of present that idea. So you kind of you kind of lay it out there, kind of like you know, maybe a lot of reform Baptist guys don't listen, don't give you guys time to like kind of express what you guys believe, you know, vice versa. So it's kind of cool to have some different diversity on these episodes and stuff. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. There's a there's a podcast some local guys do uh, from one guy from Hot Springs and another guy who was in Conway. Uh, they just had a Lutheran guy from 1517 uh, on their podcast, and uh, it was a it was a cool conversation to listen to. So. Um, yeah, I, I respect that. And I think that's a great right. idea. So the ball's your court, man, but I'm going to get on out of here, man. And like always, Blake, and to my listeners, my cash app name is PAY1515.